As I was preparing this week, I was reminded of an account in the Old Testament. And and you may be familiar with this account. You may not remember uh, this account in the Old Testament of Jacob and, and Laban. Where Jacob is 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 traveling, and he uh, comes into a, a, he didn't know it at the time, but a, a family member's uh, territory, and he's at the well, and here comes this shepherdess named Rachel, and he was just smitten with her, and he wanted to take her as his wife, and so he goes to her father, Laban, and there's this really weird kind of family connection that I'm not too sure about, so don't ask about that. We'll figure all that out later. But what's interesting in this account is Laban says, sure, sure, you can have my daughter Rachel to marry only this one thing. You've got to work for me for seven years. And then this, the, the oh, how sweet moment in this story comes about where it says, and um, I forget which, I wrote it down for my life first, for my marriage. In, chapter, in verse 20, it says, the seven years but were like days because of his love for Rachel. And then the interesting plot turn, right? The end of the seven years happens. He's been engaged to this woman, Rachel, to be married. And there's this big celebration. And the party must have gotten maybe a little too wild because in the evening when his bride comes into him, they spend the evening together. And you can just imagine just wanting to wake up and say, you know, I have been working this past seven years and I'm just so looking forward to spending my life with this woman and he rolls over and it's not Rachel it's Rachel's sister can you imagine the disappointment or the anger he was tricked and then he spends another seven years in order to be able to marry this woman of his dreams. None of us have been tricked like that, I hope. However, we can all relate to this idea of maybe signing up for one thing and getting another. I mean, a stupid example of this would be that I am a sucker for watching commercials about this wonderful new sandwich at some sandwich shop and just looking forward to going and getting it and it's this big juicy piece of chicken hanging out of this bun and you have to lift the bun to see the chicken patty once you really get it drives me crazy and I hope I'm not offending anyone this morning but there's the old adage of being a used car salesman And the whole idea behind that is that you sell somebody on something that's just wonderful and great, but yet you get home or you might make it home because the car is actually a lemon and you've already signed on the dotted line. We all understand this. We all understand that there are people out there that are tricking us, getting us to sign up for something or getting us to to buy something only to have the rug pulled out from under us. And one of the things that grieves my heart as a minister is that sometimes we do this in church. That sometimes we do this in evangelism. I mean, think about it. I have heard examples. I have, when I was younger, I I sat in some situations where this was 
being done in, in youth ministry. Where essentially the pastor or the person who is trying to lead someone to the Lord says something like this. Hey, do you want your life to go really, really well? Turn your life over to Jesus. And the subtle implications, if not bold, are that if you follow Jesus, here's what's going to happen. Your marriage is going to be rock solid. Your kids, perfect. They'll all go to Harvard and Yale on full scholarships. No pain. Perfect. In its worst case, I've heard things like this. You follow Jesus, you turn your life over to Him, He wants you to be wealthy and healthy, give your life to Jesus, and as long as you have enough faith, everything's going to go A-OK. What happens when you buy into that? What happens when you believe that, and then life starts happening? Two men from the same church here in town that preach that kind of gospel, I have had the opportunity to sit with, and in tears, one of them suicidal, they were in tears and just depressed because they felt like Jesus didn't love them because they were going through hardships and difficulties. What happens if you believe this is what following Jesus means? And then you actually start reading the Bible. As we've been going through the book of Mark, the road for these disciples, the road for Jesus hasn't been easy. It's been difficult. So, so what's going on? I mean, is it okay? I mean, is it okay if, if we can save someone or, or get them to lay down their life for Christ that we can save whatever we want as long as they kind of make that decision and, and then we hope something magical happens when we say a prayer so when hardships come, it doesn't hit them as painfully? Is this what Jesus did? Was Jesus constantly promising the good life only for His disciples to walk a road that was extremely difficult. We know better. As we've been marching through the book of Mark, one of the things that you've heard me constantly say is that a change in this book, a change in the narrative, in other words, you can almost put a banner, or you know, in, your, in some of your Bibles there are titles to sections, and almost from chapter 8 until now, the, the banner, the title over this whole section could be, Deny Yourself, Pick Up Your Cross, Follow Me. As Jesus has been pouring into His disciples, as Jesus has been in, in this section, we have really the teaching of Jesus, the walking along with the disciples. He is just pouring into them, telling them what it's going to mean to be a disciple of His. And this is the flavor of everything He is telling them. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow Me. This is what the path of discipleship looks like. And this is the theme. 
And didn't we see it two weeks ago? When we were in Mark two weeks ago and we looked at the account of the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes to Christ and says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus tells him, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. By exposing his idol. Go sell everything you have and be following me. And he went away sad because Jesus made him count the cost and it was more than he was willing to pay. And then Jesus turns and pours into his disciples and explains to them what following him will look like. Now, as we looked at that, one of the things that has endeared me towards that rich young ruler was the whole idea that Jesus, if we remember, if we went back to verse 17, Jesus was leaving town. He was starting off on a journey and the rich young ruler runs to him. And we've got this interruption. And so in our passage today, as we pick this back up, Jesus is on this same journey. Jesus is back on the path. And what we're having in the book of Mark and in all the Gospels, this happens, that at this point in the Gospel story, there is a change. We have gone from... The, the, the teachings and the meditations of Jesus about discipleship. And now we are turning towards Jerusalem. We are turning towards what's called the passion events. The events leading up to Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so this, this, this thing is changing. In fact, in the book of Luke, it says at this point that Jesus' face turned towards Jerusalem. That his and the point of that is that his face, his posture, his body, everything in him now turned to what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And what we see in this account, and it would make sense, wouldn't it? That the disciples and those that were following Jesus picked up something. There was something different. Notice in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. Why were they fearful? What was going on? I mean, we know if you've been with us as we've been looking at this text, as we've been journeying through the book of Mark, that Jesus has several times, two other times that we know explicitly and plainly told them what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And every time he tells them this, they miss it. They miss it. So why are they nervous now? Why are they afraid? And I think there are at least two things going on. One is that they see a change in Jesus. I think they see a change in his demeanor as he is marching forward in what some commentators and authors have called a death march. They see a change in him. But I also think that they are nervous because they know that he is walking into Jerusalem where the Pharisees are, where the scribes are, where the Sadducees are, and they know that things aren't going to be easy. They know that this road is going to be difficult, even if they don't understand how difficult it is. They know it's going to be difficult. If you were there in this group of disciples and other followers, what would be your tendency? 
I think many of our tendency would be like, hey, I'm going to sit this one out. I'll see you on the other side. Jerusalem is on a hill. You might say, you know, my knees are kind of hurting. We've been walking for a while. I'll hang out down here in the valley. I'll walk around and see you on the other side. How much does safety and complacency control us? Hear me out. I don't want to be misunderstood here. It says that these followers were afraid. And I know the Bible verses and agree with the Bible verses that the perfect, perfect love casts out fear. I believe that when we're trusting in, in Christ, that there is no need to fear because He is our sovereign King and it gives us courage. So hear me out when I say this. I don't want to be misunderstood There's part of me as a pastor and just as a normal human being that would much rather wrestle with fear than complacency. I would much rather, I think, be known as the guy who is walking into something that he is nervous about and fearful about because it's the path that God has set out before him than the guy who's sitting on the sidelines. Another way to say this would be this. I'm assuming all of you have a neighbor. Some of your neighbors may be further away. Some of them may be closer. And so when I say that one of the things that we are called to do is to be salt and light, to bring the truth of the gospel to our neighbors around us who might be perishing, that may create a little fear in you. What if I'm rejected? What if they say no? What if they do this? And I want to say, I would much rather you wrestle with that fear than to sit in your home very complacent about your walk with the Lord. Jesus is far from tricking these followers. This is the third time that Jesus has told them exactly what was going to happen. The first time is in chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then again in chapter 9, it tells us that in verse 31, he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And then again, in our passage this morning, we have even more detail. That the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death. will hand him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And what's fascinating about each one of these times that Mark is recording Jesus sitting down and plainly telling his disciples what is going to happen to them, what is very interesting is the response from the disciples. You remember the first time in Mark chapter 8, we have Peter pulling Jesus aside 
and rebuking him. The second time that we covered maybe a couple of months ago, Jesus telling his disciples that he was going to die and rise again caused some chatter amongst his disciples. Do you remember what the chatter was all about? This is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult. No. The chatter was about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. And even here this morning, we're not going to get all into this, but I want you to notice the response from the people that he was speaking to. Look at in verse 35, starting in verse 35. It says, And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? And they said, Grant us that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup? Jesus was telling them plainly, and they just didn't get it. And I wonder if they would have gotten it, and I wonder if they would have gotten the gravity of what was getting ready to happen if they would have said, oh no, I am out, deuces for you young people. The problem is that what was in their way, the obstacle that was blocking them from seeing the road that they were getting ready to walk is because the lens they were looking through was this lens of what's in it for me. And all they were hearing was about the future kingdom and they were misunderstanding about what that was and so they were just thinking like we are getting ready to get... This is like the World Series parade. Versus the reality of what was getting ready to happen. Another way of looking at this is that they were missing the conjunction. If we go back up to our previous passage from a couple of weeks ago where Jesus was teaching these disciples... And Peter says to Jesus after the rich young ruler left, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But. A very important word. But many who will be many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. They did not understand the journey. They did not understand the call to follow him. In this text this morning, as we're here in the book of Mark, it is driving towards a culmination in verse 45. Where we are told, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. And there are at least two massive truths that we need to get from this text. The first one is this. He gave his life as a ransom. 
And we are to see, even from our text this morning, as Jesus is predicting what's getting ready to happen, we need to see the price of our redemption. They spit on him. They mocked him. They beat him up. And they killed him. And he rose from the dead so that you and I could be reconciled to God. And this is a massive truth that it Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we will delve into when we get to these verses. But there's something else that's going on in this text that you can't miss. Notice how this verse starts in verse 45. For even. So that Jesus is using this as a, his, what he came to do as an example of a command that he is, or, or, or a statement that he has just said. In verse 43, it says, But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave to all, for even the Son of Man. And so what we get, and what is being laid out, and so this is what we need to bring back to our text, is this idea... That Jesus going to the cross and serving all of us in ways that we can't even imagine. The greatest servant of all. That his disciples. If you are following him. This is our journey as well. That we are to be a people. That lay down our life. Pick up our cross and follow him. Now, I want to ask you something that you may never thought about. Have you ever thought about how difficult it must be to be all-knowing like Jesus? I mean, think about the worst day you could imagine. Maybe the worst day that the worst thing that's ever happened to you, the worst day that you've ever experienced. Think about the anxiety that would be inside of you if you were all-knowing and you knew that that was getting ready to happen. Many of us would have chosen to sit 2021 out. Jesus, the divine sovereign, knew exactly what was going to happen to him. He knew exactly how hard this road was going to be. No wonder the disciples could pick up on his mood. No wonder the disciples could know and see that something had changed in him as he was walking towards Jerusalem. And then magnify that by this. Not only does he know everything, but he's all powerful. He can change it. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about Jesus on the cross. And I was thinking about the pain and the agony and the suffering. And as he was sitting there and he was bearing that for us. And I wonder as some of the people walked by and they were slandering him and they were saying, if you're the son of God, rescue yourself. And I was just thinking the echoes of 
Satan and the temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That even then, Jesus knew the pain, the suffering, the agony that was coming and the echoing of, save yourself, here's your chance. And aren't we thankful that Jesus loved and cared for us so much that that's not what He did, even though He had the knowledge and power to be able to do that. So I want to ask you this. I want to ask you this. This morning, maybe you're in here and maybe you're saying, you know, Lewis, I didn't sign up for this. Maybe one of the ways that you heard the gospel in your life growing up was one of these ways that you come to Jesus and your life's just going to be perfect and good and happy. And maybe as you've been with us in our study through Mark and you have seen the reality of the gospel, the reality of the call to discipleship, that you're saying right now, I did not sign up for this. I need the church with the happy, smiling preacher. I need that kind of false gospel. Or maybe... Maybe you're in here this morning. And the road you're on is extremely difficult. It's tough. And you as a believer. On this difficult, hard road where there is suffering are really trying to live out your faith. And there's just something inside of you that is just saying. I didn't sign up for this. This is too difficult. I never thought that following the Lord could be this hard. And there may be some of you that are saying, what do you say about that, preacher boy? Well, here's what I want to say. It's pretty simple worth it it's worth it certainly what I have in mind is the end is heaven is eternity and Jesus does use that as a motivation and it is worth it but maybe what I want you to hear from me this morning is that the road is worth it as well What what does it profit to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? Or think of it this way. We all know stories, and I'm not going to give you any stories, but we all know stories of people who are extremely wealthy, who have been able to insulate themselves from worldly troubles, and as they put their head on their pillow at night are terrorized. They have nothing to live for. There's no purpose. Nothing that this world can offer you compares to the call of the gospel. 
nothing in this world, this world can offer you, compares with the call of the gospel. The call to lay down your life, pick up your cross, and to follow Christ. There is nothing as meaningful and joyful as this call. There is nothing greater. There is nothing greater than the call to live a life for the sake of the gospel where we are serving the world. There is no pain or no guilt, no, no, no pain, no frustration, no difficulty that compares with the joy the joy of pointing people towards a Savior. Do you believe that this morning? It's interesting. I heard a non-Christian talk about the call of Jesus Christ. Weird. And it's just impacted me. He said, I don't understand what churches are doing. Christians have a message. And it's a message that brings meaning. And the message that they have should lead them to pick up the heaviest load possible and to live a life that is worth something. And I said, Amen. To this non Christian's proclamation. And the pastor that was interviewing him said, can you come preach at our church? Now, that, there's another issue there. Another issue there. But where he was right, and brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, what I want us to grasp this morning, the road that Christ was lead, leading, the road to Jerusalem, was going to be hard, was going to be difficult, more than we could imagine, but it was worth it. Will you lay down your life? Will you join Him? Will you be willing to display the love and hope that is only found in our Savior to the world? By picking up your cross. Let's pray. No tricks. No tricks. Jesus, I am thankful for this gospel. I am thankful for your life. I'm thankful for the path that you have forged. God, forgive us where we are complacent. God, even forgive us where we fear. Help us. Help us to be a people who boldly go, who boldly go and proclaim and serve the good news. And when we run into difficulty, when we run into trials, when we run into hardships, that we look at these chances, these opportunities as a way in which we can make your name great among those who are watching around us. God help us.
In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now we are going to end our service this morning by doing something that is odd unless you understand the call of the gospel. And so, if you have not if received the elements, if you will raise your hand, we've got some folks in the back that will pass, distribute those to you. Now, here's what's interesting. How do you explain this to a non-believer? What are you doing? Lewis, why do you, why do you end the service at times? And why on Christmas Eve at the service do you all, you know, eat this land thing and drink this colored juice? Why do you, why do, you do that? And the response should be, Again, twofold. That we're doing this in remembrance of our Savior, which means, number one, that we are together corporately proclaiming that what binds us together, what makes us into a family, what makes us a disciple, what makes us members of the global church is the work that Christ has done to redeem us. There's another element as well. And I want us just to spend a little time, in light of this message this morning, I want us to spend a little bit of time meditating on this other purpose as well. That by partaking, partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are also proclaiming that we are a people who share in the sufferings of Christ. I'm not asking by the sermon or by taking the Lord's Supper this morning for you to go and try to find ways to suffer. It's not what I'm asking. But what I am asking, as we do this, will you maybe think and remember and just even dedicate yourself this morning to the reality that as the followers of Christ, that even when the road gets tough and difficult, or even when the call takes you somewhere that you know might be hard, will you look to Jesus? Will you look to Jesus? Will you be reminded this morning, as we partake together, where your affections should be rooted. Is it a shame that many of our, maybe in this past year, past 18 months, that the world, through the World Wide Web, have become aware of our political convictions and our opinions about certain things? but has no idea about your affiliation with the Savior. 
pray that we'll be the church. Pray that we'll be the church. So that as we partake this morning, as we partake, there's nothing magical about these elements, but as we partake of this this morning, that we will be reminded of who He is and who we are and what that journey looks like. So, I want to ask you, if you're not a follower of Christ, please just let this time, we, we love it that you're here. We love it that you're in here with us. We want you to think this is weird. We want you to ask questions. Taking of this cup is reserved for those who have said, I'm following Christ on the road. And you're, like I've said before, you're not missing anything taste-wise. So just let it pass. Let it pass. But for those who are His, for those who are His, I pray that God's Spirit would this morning speak to your heart in such a way that you leave here focused. On the night that our Savior was going to be betrayed as He ate with His disciples, we are told that He took some bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Then a little later, took the cup and he put it forth he said this is the blood of the covenant blood that was shed for the remission of your sins take and drink let's pray one more time together Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from you would stand with me, we'll end by singing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above me, heavenly. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.
Be comforted as you go by the rock-solid truth that nothing can separate you from our Savior. You are dismissed.